And so the month of May is always a busy month in the life of the church and in your lives as well, I'm sure. We call it May-cember at my house. But the last two weeks, we've been able to celebrate two different groups. Two weeks ago, we celebrated Mothers on Mother's Day. Last week, Senior Adult Sunday. And this week, we celebrate our graduates. And if we're being honest, those two groups that we celebrated before today play a huge role in getting our graduates to today. So thank you for the role that you played in those students' lives. Graduates, this morning is a celebration of you. Some of you have already graduated this past Friday night. Many of you will graduate this coming Friday. And you'll celebrate with many of your peers. You'll be in a large arena, tons of graduates. They're all excited that you did your academic best. For us here this morning, we celebrate you because we've seen you grow up in the church. We celebrate not only your academic best and your athletic best, but also your spiritual best. And today we celebrate that and be encouraged by that. And so just like I do every year on Graduation Sunday, I I get to preach, but I also give a little bit of advice. Some of this you've heard before, some of this is be brand new, Um, but those of you that are in, in college that just graduated, now that you've graduated, just remember, bosses don't usually accept notes from your mom. Just keep that in mind for our college graduates. And this is for our high school graduates, just to keep in mind for Friday. Uh, you know that point at your graduation ceremony where everybody tosses their caps in the air? Isn't it great that we celebrate how smart we are by throwing sharp, pointy objects up in the air? So just a couple of things to keep in mind, but there's Advice for our high schoolers. You're headed into college. Many of our college graduates would echo these same sentiments. Your college professors. Don't be afraid of your college professors. They're real people too. Your study habits. You can't do the exact same things you did in high school and get away with it in college. Chapters and chapters of stuff, weeks and weeks of stuff are on your test. Don't try to cram the night before. Which pulls into sleep. You don't have to pull an all-nighter if you prepare. Sleep, but not through your morning classes. You'll take lots and lots of naps in college. I'll get an amen on that one. And take notes. Take notes. Classes, canceled emails will take your day from zero to 100 really quick. And Wi-Fi is not trustworthy on Sundays at 9 p.m. And neither is the website where you try to submit your assignment. Get that done early. College graduates, this is just as much for me as it is for you. Dishes. Do them a little bit every night. And you won't have to wash every dish you own once every two weeks. Keep that in mind. I can say that I've finally learned that in my 31st year on earth. Trial and failure. Not trial and error, trial and failure. Don't let the fear of being wrong keep you from taking initiative or doing something new. You will learn and you will try and you will do new things. This last bit's for all of us. Whether you're a graduate, whether you're a parent, whether you're a grandparent, or whether you're just somebody that stumbled in here this morning. You'll miss these days. Treasure these moments because someday you'll want these moments back. You're responsible for your actions. This is one of my favorite quotes, and I use it frequently. Um, And throughout the years, wise men like Winston Churchill, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR have all made similar statements. Um, But one of the most memorable ones that we hear comes from the deeply theological movie Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. Uncle Ben was on to something there. With great power comes great responsibility. You are now in charge of your actions. The actions you took when you were a child, yes, there were repercussions. You got a spanking, you got time out, you had privileges taken away. The actions you take now can change the trajectory of the rest of your life. And the last one, 
Accumulate memories and not stuff. It's not the nicest shoes. It's not the newest technology. It's not the best movie. It's the memories that you make along the way. And graduates, cherish these moments. Because one day you'll look back on this day. You'll look back on Friday, this coming Friday, and say, man, I could be back there. But what's more importantly than passing down worldly information and worldly advice to one generation to the next? It's the passing down of your faith. It's passing down of your faith from one generation to the next, and then that generation to the next. And so our first verse this morning comes out of Psalm 145. Psalm 145, verse 4, and it says this. Psalm 145, verse 4, it says, One generation shall commend your works to another, and they shall declare your mighty acts. And so this morning, our first verse is really going to set us up for the rest of the morning. Because in everything we talk about, that's going to be the key focal point. One generation or one person telling the next generation who then tells the next generation after them. Not just the pieces of advice that I've talked about, about the mighty works of God. And so why is that even important? Why is it important that we tell the next generation that then goes on and tells the next generation? Well, if you would, a couple of quick statistics for you. All of these coming from the North American Mission Board and their next-gen team, specifically Shane Pruitt. Gen Z is classified as anybody born between 1997 and 2012. 1997 and 2012. That's Generation Z. And so based on that, only 30% of Generation Z says that religion is important to them. That's any religion. Only 30%. And more so than that, only 20% of Gen Z says attending church is important to them. That's one in five. One in five students in Generation Z says that attending church is even important. And when you put that in perspective, you think about this. There are currently 57.6 million lost students in Generation Z in America today. That would make them the largest state in the nation if they were their own nation. It would make them 19 million more people in Gen Z than there is in the state of California. It would also classify them as an unreached people group. We talk about unreached people groups across the world, and sometimes we neglect the fact that we have an unreached people group at our doorstep. And so think with me for a minute. This is a little bit of participation here. When you came to faith in Christ, how old were you? Think about it. Now this part, I'm going to require you to, like, to raise your hand. So get buckled up. How many of you were under the age of 13 when you made a decision to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior? Under the age of 13. Okay. How many of you were 13 to 18 years old? Okay. How many of you were 18 to 30? 18 to 30. Okay. And how many of you were 31 or above? Okay. Now, I want everybody that was 30 and below to raise your hands again. If your answer was 30 and below, raise your hands again. All right, I want you to look around for a second. Everybody look around. You have permission to look around. All right, put your hands down for a second. The research that was done by NAM realized that 95% of people that come to a relationship with Jesus Christ will do so before the age of 30. 77% will do so before the age of 18. And now we see the importance of that next generation. And y'all, here's the, here's the crazy part. 
I've now crossed over from the under 30 to the over 30. So I'd be in the, thank you, thank you for that. She lives with me, so she's allowed to cheer that I'm 31. I see the importance of telling the next generation because I know what the generation before me taught me. And one of the things that Shane said, he says this, Generation Z does not care how old you are. Honestly, young people aren't looking for cool leaders to follow. They're looking for authentic ones that will love them and be patient with them. There may be a difference between the generations with dress, lingo, and the understanding of technology, but at the core, there are a lot more things in common, like the need of a savior, the need for discipleship, the need for community, and the need for purpose. Every age needs those things. So we all agree on one thing. Everybody, regardless of your age, needs Jesus. No matter whether you're the youngest person in here, you're the oldest person in here, you need Jesus. And that's where we're going to jump into this. Don't let your age discourage you. Don't let your age discourage you. Our passage for the day is Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, starting in verse number 4. Verse 4 and following, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, being Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Verse 6, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. In verse 7, But the Lord said to me, Do not say, for I am only a youth, for to who all I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Verse nine, then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So when you look at this passage, it's got a lot of undertones that we've heard in other places of Scripture. But specifically here, it's opening with Jeremiah's calling. Jeremiah has been called for a purpose. But look at this, verses 4 and 5. God created and knit Jeremiah together specifically to be a prophet, to share a good news, the gospel, with nations that existed before he was even born. God knew that he was going to be a prophet to nations that already existed. But here's the cool part. God made each of you with specific gifts, callings, calling on your life, even before you got to today. He knew what was next for you. He knew what he was calling you to do. But then we get to a part where we've heard this familiar excuse before in verse 6. I don't know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Translate, I don't know how to do that. I'm too young. That's what he's saying. You ready for this? That's an excuse that I have heard time and time again in student ministry. And it's one personally I've used myself. I can't do that. I'm too young. Hey, go do that. Ah, God, are you sure? Like, I think I'm too young. But look at this. Your age does not disqualify you from fulfilling the calling and the purpose that God has placed on your life. Jeremiah was afraid of his youth. He was afraid that the people that were older than him would look down on him, that they would be outcasts, they wouldn't listen. And yet God says, you know what? I see this. I understood what you were going to say before you made your excuse. But I've called you for a purpose. I've called you for a reason. You have a specific calling on your life to Jeremiah, but also to each of you this morning. 
next few verses, God reassures Jeremiah that not only is he able to perform what God has called him to do and has told him to do, but that God's going to be there with him every step of the journey. And a lot of times, if we're being honest with ourselves and we're honest with each other, it's when God's called us to do big things, and we're like, God, I really don't know if I can. And a lot of times when we do that, we do it selfishly out of our own power. We think that we are the one that have to do it. But I want to promise you this. When God's called you to do something, he's going to be with you every step of that journey. Every step of the journey that you take, stepping out to follow his will and to follow the calling that he has placed on your life, he will be there for you in the same way that he was here for Jeremiah. The last part here, verses 9 and 10. Not only has Jeremiah heard the word from God, but he has now physically encountered him. God is putting God's words in Jeremiah's mouth. He's told him that wherever he goes, whatever he says will be where God has sent him and what God has told him to say. And when you start to recognize that Jeremiah now has made an excuse that God says, I hear your excuse, but here's the reason why you're still doing it. Y'all, as a parent, I've seen that. Here's why. Because I said so. Okay. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But you look at God here. God says, hey, I heard your excuse, but you don't have to go by yourself. You're going with my power. You're going with my words. And you look at the power of the spoken word throughout Scripture. You see it in Genesis 1. How did God speak everything into being? With his words. Everything that existed in Genesis 1. You're like, okay, well, that's Old Testament God, God speaking that. Okay, well, let's travel to Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Revelation 19. God ultimately wins the battle with his words to defeat his enemies. So when you recognize that the power of the spoken word here, it's the power and authority of God. It's not Jeremiah by himself. It's not you by yourself. It's not me by myself. But you recognize that Jeremiah's commission and his calling came with that authority. It wasn't his own power. It wasn't his own strength. He would have failed. But it's the power and the authority of Christ. And so even in the midst of being a young man, Jeremiah had been set apart for a bigger purpose. He had a higher calling in his life. And the words of that passage sound oddly familiar to one that we've heard before. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 11. And you start to recognize the same theme. We see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament, and we see it even today. Young people wondering, how do I set the example for people in this community that are older than me? I'm just a kid. I'm just a student. I'm just a college student. The list goes on and on, even to the point where I've even been called to do things, and I've gone to Pastor Keith and said, I don't feel like I'm qualified to do this. I'm only 30. I'm sitting in rooms of people that have been in ministry longer than I've been alive. And I want you to recognize that this passage here, this is one that, that I've been reminded of frequently. And it's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So this passage here, you have Paul writing a letter to Timothy. Timothy is young in the faith. Some people believe that Timothy was in his late 20s, early 30s at the point that he's receiving these. And so for me, I sit in that, and I'm like, wait, like, he felt unqualified at the same spot that I feel unqualified. He felt in question to do things that God had called him to do that sometimes we do the same. So it doesn't matter whether you're five or 105, this passage is for you too. Because you see this, and Timothy was a young man who Paul called his son of the, in the faith, son of the faith, because he followed Jesus in the example that Paul had set and his mother and his grandmother. 
And at a young age, Paul entrusted Timothy with the leadership of the church in Ephesus. So we've heard of the book of Ephesians. We've heard of First and Second Timothy. And now we start to see them, how they piece up. He knew that Timothy might feel inadequate for the job and that others might even disrespect Timothy because of his age. And yet, key point, Paul knew that God had called and gifted Timothy for such a calling as this. Paul knew that God had called and gifted Timothy because of this. He wasn't confident just in Timothy. He was confident in the God who had called Timothy. In the same way that on Sunday morning like this, Pastor Keith has allowed me to preach, if Pastor Keith didn't trust in the God who put me here, then Pastor Keith would be here before you right now giving this message. In the same way, Paul trusted Timothy. Paul trusted that God had called Timothy for such a time as this. You look back at our passage, who does Paul encourage Timothy to set the example for? Not the non-believers. It's not the world that's outside the doors. He's called to set the example for the believers. If we're honest with ourselves, it's really easy to be set apart from the world that we live in. It's easy to say, hey, I woke up, I went to church on Sunday morning, and that already makes me different than my neighbor. I've set the example. But how do you set the example amongst believers? How do you set the example among people that already believe the same thing you believe? Because that's what Paul is calling Timothy to do here. He's not saying, hey, Timothy, it's really easy. Just go ahead and do the things that you know you need to do to like, check that box. He's saying, hey, be above that. Set the example. And so when you see this, this is essentially telling us to be so much like Christ that even other believers want to be like you as you imitate Christ. This isn't to make copy-paste, copy-paste, copy-paste of little me. This is to imitate me as I imitate Christ. The same words as Paul. And so what does it look like to set the example in the following? It says in the passage, to set the example in speech. In everything that you say, set the example. In conduct, in everything that you do. In love, in everything that you love and how you love those things. In faith, in your faithfulness to God and to the church and impurity in every aspect of your life. So what does it look like to set an example in each of those areas? Because Paul was specific. This wasn't just, hey, set the example, check, and move on. This is day in and day out, every aspect. And so that's the same for us today. And throughout time, we have heard of examples of young people that have led revivals and have led battles and charges and scholars. We've heard of all that in our day. But when you look back at Scripture, you can see how young people were used even in Scripture. And so a couple of examples. You have David. David slayed Goliath when he was a teenager, standing up for the God of Israel. Think about that. Goliath there every single day comes out, hey, who's going to defeat me? And he's blasphemes God. But old David's like, hey, what's that guy? Okay, I've had enough. And he just takes care of business, right? He was young when he did it. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and become second in command in all the nation. Brothers didn't like him, got rid of him, but God. Josiah, one of my favorite stories. Josiah ascended to the kingship in the throne of Judah at age of eight. Don't know about you, but a lot of the eight-year-olds I know, I don't trust with like my breakfast, much less the entire nation. Then you have Daniel. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Indigo, we've heard the stories, we've seen it in Veggie Tales. They were young in their faith when they stood up for what they believed. And ultimately, one of my favorite passages, John 6, you have the no-named young boy 
young boy, that's all he's given. He gave of his lunch, and Jesus multiplied and fed thousands. Because of the faithfulness of one young boy, thousands ate that day. That wasn't because the six-year-old or eight-year-old or however old you want him to be said, hey, like, I know that you can do miracles and here's my food and just feed everybody. He's like, I don't know what you're going to do with this, but this is all I have. And his faith, his example, fed thousands. And lastly, we have Timothy. He's used as a young man to lead and set the example to many that would follow. But I want us to key back in on that passage. I want us to look at the relationship between Paul and between Timothy. Because that is what starts us on the importance of generational discipleship. Intergenerational discipleship. This is one of the things for me that I really enjoy. This is something I did. This is my concentration in my master's program. I've talked about discipleship and the importance of discipleship for probably 10 plus years. But for me, it's seeing it in scripture and then seeing it replicated in real life to understand the importance that it really does play. In Scripture, the model that we're given to instill with our children our faith that our parents and grandparents share with us is how we do so in the relationship, the mentorship, and the community. So how do we share our faith with the next generation? There's examples throughout Scripture. We're going to dive into Deuteronomy 6 in a minute. But you have Timothy, his mother, and his grandmother. We talked about that in 1 Tim. But you also have Timothy and Paul in 2 Timothy as well. Eli and Samuel in 1 Samuel 3. Elijah and Elisha. Think about that. Elijah and Elisha, he saw him literally taken up. Naomi and Ruth in the entire book of Ruth. And then Moses and Joshua. Moses and Joshua. One of those passages that we talked about even a couple weeks ago, the end of Joshua's life, Joshua 24, he says, hey, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But who came before Joshua? Who taught Joshua to instill in the next generation, hey, and all of Israel, we're going to stand up for Jesus and we love the God of Israel That's who we're going to serve. What about you? It was Moses. So you see Moses to Joshua, Joshua to the whole assembly of Israel. But this intergenerational community, it's something that existed in all of Israel and it's something that exists today. It's not just for the Old Testament in days gone by. We see it in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 where you have older men who have been entrusted with this that's then telling younger men who will then tell many faithful men after. And another key part of our passage here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. You then, my child, this is Paul writing to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What have you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses? Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Think about that. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also teach others. Paul said it to a lot of people. Timothy was in attendance. Timothy heard it and had to tell other people. But look at the last part. What you heard from me and what you've told them, let them also tell other people. You have four different waves of discipleship in one passage. It's not just for you. It's for the person you tell and the person that they tell. Because one of the key parts about discipleship is you really aren't discipling anybody until your disciples are making disciples. Think about the 12 disciples of Jesus. If they had taken what Jesus had said, kept it to themselves, and never told anybody else, would they have really been disciples of Christ? Because the example that Jesus had said is like, hey, take this and go. And that's the same for us. Take this and go. 
And so let's jump into our Deuteronomy 6 passage. Deuteronomy 6, this is a passage that I heard, honestly, when I was in seminary. And it's one that kind of jumps out when you talk about what it looks like to have intergenerational discipleship. What does it look like for one generation to tell the next? And for me, as a, as a parent of two girls, a four-year-old and a one-year-old now, what does it look like for me to pass my faith down to them? So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and of your gates. This passage, again, parallels a lot of other things we hear in Scripture. But it starts with this. Verses 4 through 9 are stressing the importance of what you pass down to the next generation. And then it tells us how you do it. So you see here, it's a passage that we've heard. It's a phrase that we've heard. You see it, love God with your heart, your soul, and your strength. And you're like, wait a second. I think he forgot one. No. In Deuteronomy 6, these are the three that are listed. But in Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 10, you hear, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And it's followed by, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what you see in Deuteronomy 6, you see in the Gospels, you see in the Great Commandment. You hear the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, and yet we see it even in Old Testament. Because you have to love your Lord, your God. But you can't love somebody that's not your God. And that's for all of us too. It has to be for you before it can be for somebody else. You aren't as excited or passionate about something that you just learned about if you don't care about it. For me, that's what this is. Discipleship. That's my passion. I love it. I could talk all day about it. I won't. I'll get you out of here by lunchtime. But other people in here might not be passionate about that. I could talk about the Atlanta Braves a lot. Some of you, it's the Dallas Cowboys. Some of you, you could care less about sports. So if I got you to come up here and say that, you wouldn't be passionate about it. But here's the kicker. Verses 7 through 9, we start to understand the role that we play in discipleship. This is for all of us. This isn't just parents or grandparents. This is anybody that's walked in here today. We always hear, I know the Bible says I should be teaching my student blank. Fill in the blank. We're just too busy. I know that I need to be at home doing X, but we're just too busy. Okay, well, the good news is the the writer of Deuteronomy here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit gives us this. With repetition being the key, the end of verse 7 says, when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down at night, and when you get up in the morning. So if you're like me, you didn't walk here. So you're like, okay, well, that X that off. No, let's paraphrase that. When you ride in your car or truck, whatever you ride in, that's what it's talking about. So, so when you sit at home, when you're at home, are you having spiritual conversations? Are you having gospel-centered conversations with your family, with your friends, with anybody that comes in those doors? Are you having those conversations? Oh, well, Jeff, we're never home. okay. When you walk along the road, when you drive in your car, when you are riding wherever you go, are you having spiritual conversations? Are you having gospel-centered conversations? One of the things that I love about my wife and her relationship she has with our oldest is it's called car conversations with Lydia. It's literally the funniest and most genuine thing in the world because you can ask her anything. 
Because when you're in a car, you're, you're kind of relaxed. Your guard's down. And she says, what did you learn today? She'll talk about this Bible verse or that Bible verse. But it's the intentional discussion, the spiritual conversation. Because what else are you going to do when you're riding in the car? You're going to listen to music or a podcast or sit in silence? So why not use that time effectively? When you lie down at night. So this is for the night owls. Perfect. This is just for you. It's late at night and you're ready to like keep on going. Are you having spiritual conversations? Everybody that's still awake, everybody that's still there, are you still talking about Jesus? Are you talking about the things that he's done, the things that he continues to do, and the things that he has always been faithful to do? All right, well, if you're not a night owl, guess what? When you get up in the morning, when you get up in the morning, first thing, are you spending time in the Word? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you having those spiritual conversations at your breakfast table? Or if you're like our family and you're like, breakfast on the run, okay, well, that goes back to being in the car. Why does it seem like this is taking out every excuse that we have? Because the writer here is literally talking about the daily rhythm of life. It doesn't matter if you're a morning person or a night owl. It doesn't matter if you're staying at home all the time or whether you are never home at all. This is every step and every aspect of your life. To have those spiritual conversations, to have that be on the forefront. And here's the hard part. Because this includes every single rhythm of our life and every single aspect of our life, we start to recognize the difference between being physically present and spiritually present. One of the biggest issues amongst the 57.6 million law students in America today is there are parents that are physically present but spiritually absent. And church, that's where we come in. Because being spiritually present in the lives of students is how we pour our faith into the next generation that then pours their faith into a generation that comes after them. And you look back at the context of Deuteronomy 6. It said in the whole assembly of Israel, you have the youngest of babies to the oldest of the old elders. And it's similar to today. We have the youngest of the young and the oldest of the old all in here together. But you recognize that it's for all of us. It wasn't just for one or the other. It was for all of us. And that's what we have to realize. Graduates, you got to this point not by yourself. You got to this point because the people that were older than you, some of them were your peers, and some of you have siblings that are younger than you that helped you even to get to this point. How will you pour into the next generation? And you think back for all of us to our passage in Jeremiah 1. What is God calling you to do that you feel inadequate to do? that you give him every excuse in the book that he has called you to do. Realize it's not your power that you're stepping out in faith to do. It's his, it's his power, his authority, and his commission and calling. Thinking of 1 Timothy 4, and what relationships that you're in, are you the encourager? Are you the challenger? Are you the one who's saying, hey, you know what? You need to take that step of faith. On the flip side, what relationships should you be doing the reverse our last passage, Deuteronomy 6, regardless of who you are, a parent, a graduate, a family member, somebody that just randomly walked in or found us online, how are you going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and tell the next generation about the way that God has been faithful in your life? And so for me, I think of this. Each of us has an opportunity to find those relationships in our life, to have that Paul and to have that Timothy. And for me, I'm thankful to, to stand here even in the pulpit of somebody that I revere as one of my Pauls. That Pastor Keith has been a Paul to me being his Timothy at times. 
many faithful men have played that role in my life. But if I don't have a Paul pouring into me, how many Timothys can I pour into? And so if we truly believe that one generation will tell the next, that will tell the next, that will then tell the next, if I didn't have generations pouring into me, I couldn't pour into them who then couldn't pour into another. And the statistics that we hear about, they don't get better without Jesus. They get worse. And so my final question for each of us today is, will you? Will you commit to pray for these graduates and these families? Many of them are about to embark on a journey that they have never been a part of before. Will you pray for them? Will you commit to seeking out God's will in your life that he would have you step out in faith to do? And lastly, will you commit to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind while actively pouring into another generation of believers? Because that's the prayer. How will you pour into another generation that will pour into another generation after them? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for allowing us to gather again to be in in your house to celebrate these graduates, the accomplishments, and the families that have played a role in getting them to this point. We pray for everybody within the sound of my voice that they would come to know you in a personal way, that they would be able to share the gospel with another group and then to that group to tell somebody else and to tell somebody else, Lord, just through the power of multiplication. Lord, we thank you for being faithful in my life and in the life of this church and in the life of so many others. In your name I pray. Amen.